And I have a history teacher who was like that. And he was called Keith Hill. And he was teaching the Wars of the Roses when I was in my teens. I was 14, 15, I suppose. And he just taught history as if it happened yesterday. Mm. So, you know, well, when the sort of convention for teaching history was just to force feed kids with dates and facts, he asked all the interesting questions. Like, you know, what do you think she was thinking when he did that? Or why did he do that and what happened next? In all of the really important character-driven questions. Mm. And I was just completely gripped by it. I was just gripped by it. And um, so in that sense, I suppose I was a bit of a history nerd because most of the other pupils in the class were probably asleep and on and off. It's right there at all. And and I think he realised that I was interested. And that must have been quite a new experience for him to have a pupil who was interested in what he was talking about, I suspect. So he just started lobbing books, you know, across the desk at me. You know, read that, read this, read that, read that. And... You know, it was textbooks and it was historical biographies, but every so often a novel would come flying across the desk as well. So I'd be reading fiction too. And and it had started in a way before that because my mother was my mother was an avid reader of story. And long before I went to school she start she taught me to read and we would read together. And we quickly got bored with children's books. And then in the end, I was just reading whatever she was reading. And, and that a lot of that was historical fiction. Mm. Jean um, Clady and Georgia Hare and all the usual suspects, mm. you know, Catherine Cookson. Catherine Cookson, yeah. I saw you love that. I mean, she's brilliant, brilliant. Oh, those big northern matriarchs, yeah. you know. So, so in a way, Keith Hill took up where my mother left off, in a way. Mm. So that was where my passion with with history and this period of history in particular began mm, mm. you know so in a way it's all keith hill's fault well let's we'll have to talk yeah but keith hill he's got a lot to answer for um yeah. but i mean it's lovely i was reading um what you were saying about how i think was it where your dad was doing night shifts and your mum she did all different jobs like you know being a cleaner yeah. she started off as a nurse but then stopped that when she was married as often would happen um as the way but but it sounded i did it that you'd read late into the night together just in bed um and that but then in the morning and obviously she is a very strong lady herself that in the morning she would just say right come on you you know here's your, your strong cup of tea get back into the real world type of thing really and you know so but how lovely you had this the softness of it's a, of, of this wonderful storytelling as a backdrop of your life yeah oh yeah I can remember sitting with my mum in reading in bed and weeping you know over sad historical novels the two of us in tears you know? <laughs> <laughs> historical romances and things like that oh, but is there nothing... enough of all of that you know <laughs> there's nothing like it though being moved by a book that i mean it's just it's just so magical i mean so so is this then why so you you first of all you when you left school you you went into publishing and was it presumably it was this love of books that took you so but you said that actually you had to change this because you thought you're not really going to make a good enough living there yeah it was i guess I mean, it was in my 
It was while I was at university, I think, that I decided that I wanted to write Cecily's story. You know, that, that interest, that seed that Keith Hill had sown was growing away there underground. And I was just intrigued by this woman who had effectively been written out of history. So I went to university and I did an English degree. And my plan was that I would uh, leave university and get a job in publishing. And I, would, and I thought this would be a wonderful way to live. You know, I'd be working in publishing during the day, you know, working on books and in the book world. And then at night I would write my novel and this, this would be a perfect life, you know. Mm. Um, so that was, we were in the sort of mid eighties by then. And I did leave university and I got a job in publishing. It was fantastic. It was one of the best, it was a brilliant job, but it paid about threepence a week, mm. you know. And I don't know what it's like now, but back in the eighties, all of the young women who were working in publishing, you know, were called Felicity or Fiona and they all had, they were all engaged to Rupert or they had a trust fund from daddy, you know, and it didn't matter that they were only threepence a week. But mm. I did not have either a Rupert or a trust fund. No. Um, so I was working, I was doing my job during the day, which was a very demanding job. But I was also working in pubs in the evenings and I was working in bookshops at weekends just to pay rent in, and live in London. And it was just not feasible. It couldn't go on. No. I decided that, you know, there was no time to write anyway. Um, so I decided I needed a plan B. So I decided to go into business proper and um, and I knew that that would be a very demanding thing to do. So I took the decision there and then that I would put off the writing dream, if you like, until I was 55. So I would go into business and I would try and be successful and make enough money that I could retire early at 55 and then I would write the novel. Wow, and why... Okay, let me just stop you there a second, Annie. Where, did you study English at university? Mm-hmm. And where did you go to university? I went to the University of Wales. Okay, okay. I was in Lampeter in mid-Wales. Okay, yeah. so you travelled around a little bit and then obviously you went to London with the publishing. And mm-hmm. when, just so that we know just sort of now, is because you mentioned Cecily, for the mm-hmm. listener, can you explain who Cecily is? And obviously we're going to come back to her later on. But who who is Cecily and why did she have such an influence on you? Okay, so I mentioned that back in the Keith Hill days, we were studying Wars of the Roses and all of that, the the great wars between Lancaster and York in the 15th century. So Cecily was the matriarch of the House of York. And when I was studying the Wars of the Roses and first getting into it, the people who, the person I was most interested in at at that point was Richard III, who was Cecily's son. You know, was he a hunchback? Did he murder the kids? All of that stuff. But as I... As I got to know the period better, I became more and more and more fascinated by the women in that period because there were just barnstorming women then. There was, you know, Margaret Anjou and Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret Beaufort, and they were just fantastic and they had such agency and power. But there was one woman who kept sort of eluding me. I couldn't quite get to grips with her, and it was Richard's mother. It was Cecily. And... It's very difficult to find out anything about her. She barely appears in history books. And every time I thought I was getting a glimpse of her, she'd just disappear again. And I found myself wondering why that was. 
And in a way, I blame Shakespeare because when she appears in the history plays, A, she hardly does appear. And when she does, she's very old, she's very pious, she's very dull. And she just wanders around a lot complaining about how awful the kids are and how it's not her fault. (laughs) (laughs) I think for 500 years, everyone's thought, oh, that's Cecily, she's pious, dull, boring, let's move on to someone more interesting. But when you get into the truth of it, you know, it couldn't be more different. She was an extraordinary woman. She was born in 1415, so the year of Agincourt and all of that. And she lived into the first decade of the Tudor dynasty, so 80 years. And in that 80 years, she saw her dynasty rise and fall. She bore 12 children. She outlived all but two of them. And during that 80-year period, she was always very close to the throne. She was born into a Lancastrian family, but married the Duke of York and became matriarch of York. And, you know, she was really... There's a sort of myth that women, aristocratic women in the Middle Ages had no power or agency. You know, at best, they were the sort of adored decorations of the court. And at worst, they were sort of victims who were suppressed and sometimes abused. But in fact, that's a complete Hollywood fiction. Medieval aristocratic women had immense power. And someone like Cecily, who is Duchess of York, was, you know, she was a businesswoman, she was a politician, she was profoundly literate, she was a sponsor of the arts. You know, she was a real mover and shaker in her time. And yet, subsequent history written by men has allowed us to forget that. Mm. So I became very determined to bring this immensely powerful woman back to life. Mm. So that became my drive really i mean that's incredible so the but the when you when you then were working in publishing and you had hoped that in the evening you would write a novel that you had planned even then to write about cecily then but so what made you pick the age 55 it felt it felt ambitious i was very driven to make money i came from a background where there wasn't any (laughs) and I wanted to be an independent woman and make my way in the world um, on my own terms. Mm. So it felt, and if I was, I felt too that if I was going into business, I I wanted to be successful in it. I wanted to do it well. And I knew that that would take up my energies. But So it felt ambitious but realistic to think that by the time I was 55, I would be able to re- retire or change career and do the writing with no expectation that it would need to make money because it's very difficult to make money publishing books. Yes, I know. <laughs> let's, let's yeah. be honest about yeah, it. it. Is, it is. First of all, someone's got to want to publish them. Mm. Um, so I knew that I had to achieve that first Mm. so so how did you do that because you did do this I mean it's incredible so you moved then in into like you said into the business world and you Mm. went into comms in the business world so how how did you do that so a lot of the work that I've been doing in publishing um I worked for an organization called book trust which these days is concerned purely with children's fiction children's writing but then was a very active sort of 
Arts Council funded organisation that had a very broad remit to promote reading in every way possible. So we were involved in everything from lobbying government for public library lending rights to administering big prizes, literary prizes like the Booker, for example, um, doing programmes with schools and within education to promote reading, all kinds of things. So my the two or three years that I spent in publishing had been very communications focused. I'd been doing a lot of the publicity work and administering the prizes and so on. So the natural step from that, if I was going to make a sideways step, was to go into communications, publicity, marketing in another industry. So I went from there into a big London PR agency and worked in agencies for six or seven, eight years, working my way up. And from there, um, went into in-house, as it were, so working within organisations. I guess my biggest job then was head of corporate comms for UPS, you know, the parcel delivery company. Mm. So I worked for them for six or seven years as um, heading up their European communications. Wow. Which was fantastic. That was a truly international role. Mm. Um, And then from there, I made the decision to set up my own business. So for the final 20 years or so of my career, I was running my own communications agency. Okay, wow. That's, I mean, that is amazing. And also, but also to have that, the insight as well for what you wanted to do and to shape your own life, really. You wanted to have the financial security you still wanted to write the novel and you'd planned it, you know, so that's, that is being a very strong and courageous woman and sort of being realistic as well. But actually, I mean, how, it sounds like though, I mean, like you said that you did have like a, it was a pro, you know, an international business career. You're traveling around. Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy the work? Yes, I enjoyed it very, very much. Mm. Um, I got the opportunity to do things and go places and meet people that I would never have got to do in any other way. And and also learned an awful lot that has informed the writing. Yeah, yeah. Oddly. Yeah, because also, like you said, you are often sat around the table with uh, women, but also you, you could see in... Um, in today's world obviously you had this great passion for history and how women were sort of so underrepresented but then you could see how women were treated in today's world as well and I would imagine that sort of really informed your whole sort of perspective about everything yeah I would very often find myself the only woman at the big table Mm. where the business decisions were being made and learning the skills that every woman that has ever worked in business I'm afraid has probably had to learn is how to get the men to do the things that you want them to do Mm. when they think they have all the power cards. Yeah. And I found myself numerous times thinking, I'm doing exactly what Cecily was doing five or six hundred years ago. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and it hasn't changed. When power cards are in male hands, how are you going to make sure that your agenda is met and that the things that you want to do the things that you want happen how are you going to make your voice heard how are you going to influence decision making how are you going to operate in a world that is dominated by men and how did you i think you learn all sorts of techniques don't you (laughs) 
I don't know. I'm still learning, Annie. I'm still learning. Yes, that's a very good idea, Miss Smith. Would not one of the men like to have it? Yeah. <laughs> I, it was, I was doing a book event last year with um, talking about Cecily, and there was a young woman in her 30s came up to me, um, and she said that... Um, she, she was she was in the, she was an officer in the army, and she'd read Cecily, and she said, "Cecily talks to the men in her world in exactly the way that I talk to the men in my platoon." She said, mm. "I tell them what's going to happen. I have a good idea and make them think they had it. I flirt a bit. I joke with them a bit. I make them feel good about themselves, and then I tell them what I want them to do." isn't it sad that we're still doing oh Annie you know why I mean obviously it's something you've looked at such a lot but why do you think I mean why are we still going through this now well I think I guess naively I'd hope that you know I mean I'm in my 60s now and I guess naively I'd hope that things have moved on for young women but talking to them I find it hasn't that Mm. much in most industries and I think these are just lessons that we have learned roles that we have taken on male and female that are so entrenched in us that they're almost part of our DNA and it's going to take generations and generations for us to change Mm. that and awareness I suppose and I mean and also look you know look at you what you were doing the point is you were at the big table but you were the only woman um so there's a progress but there's still so much I mean oh this is something we could talk about for a long time because there's just so much uh progress that needs to be made and then sort of throw into you know when women start start having other commitments like children or elderly parents and it falls on them and this it just becomes impossible you know it just becomes absolutely impossible in a way that you know and I know lots of great men my husband included who takes on so much responsibility but in the bigger world it's still very much a traditional which is what I think so so many of us of us do do see so so there, what made you then decide to have your own business? Was it something to do with this? Yes. Yeah. It absolutely was. Yeah, I wanted you. to do the work on my terms. Yeah. Um, so I set up in business on my own. I kept my business deliberately small um, so that I was working directly on every piece of client business. And so that I could take on only the work that I was interested in and wanted to do. Okay. And I wasn't thinking, well, I don't really want to take on that piece of business, but, you know, I've got 30 people's salaries to pay, therefore I will. Mm. You know, mm. I could make decisions about what work I did on the basis of, do I like the people? Do I want to work with them? Do I share their values? Is it interesting? Um, and, and is it going to make the world a bit of a better place? Mm. So who did you, who, what, what were your clients? Who were your clients, Annie? My clients were, it ranged from big American multinationals right down to smaller startups. Um, all business to business, um, so no consumer work, really. Um, but particularly when I was running my own business, my work was concerned with 
helping organizations to articulate who they were and what they wanted to do. So it was often that sort of the front end of brand building. I would often get involved with organizations that were either starting up or had gone through a profound period of change, perhaps because of merger or acquisition or whatever, and needed to recalibrate who they were and what their offer to the marketplace was. And to me, that was really fascinating because, you know, it was who are we, what do we want to do and why should the world care about it? Mm. And helping an organization work through that and then how are you going to get that message out into the marketplace? It's fascinating and it inevitably throws up business issues that then they as a company have got to go back and address to make them a better business. Mm. And what, sorry, that, only because I just find this very fascinating. And when you say that, so what sort of issues? Was it that they're, like you said earlier, about their values not aligning with what they're actually trying to do, the way they're going about things? Is it all, that's what, and you could look at that in that sort of fine detail? Yes. So you'd be, you'd be, you know, what is your proposition to the market? Oh, our proposition to the market is X. Okay. So what do you do in your business that supports that? Oh, A, B, C, D, and E. Okay, great. So you're very good at A, B, C. You're actually not great at D and E. So in order to make that claim in the marketplace credibly and live up to it, you've got to go back and do some business changes. Mm. oh have we yes we have. <laughs> <laughs> but i'm sure very rewarding work as well when you see if they do actually do if they've invested in you and then you do the change they do the change to see the the transformation and i would imagine we'll come on to talk about it it's very much helping you with your book now to get your book out into the world because i understand you know that's well we're, we're going to come on to that we'll come on to that so you did that for 20 years and, and were you living in shropshire by this time annie yes and yeah. had you met your partner Yes, I met my partner when I was very young. We were, I was 24 when we met. Okay, okay. 37 years or Wow, something. okay. But then obviously you left, when you left the big corporate world, is that when you moved to Shropshire? Yes. Okay, so you had a whole, you had a whole next chapter there where you started and you live in the countryside with lovely animals and it sounds like yes. all very idyllic. Yeah, which we kind of always wanted to do in a sort of dreamy way. But my partner had grown up on a small holding. So I've grown up in a sort of industrial northeast town, but she'd grown up on a rather nice small holding in Essex. Oh, nice. And was quite keen, I think, to get back to that way of life. So when it came to that point, um, I guess I was in, we were, what, in our late 30s, I guess, weren't we, by then? And we thought, well, this is the moment to do that. You know, she'd, she'd worked in publishing and then had done an art degree. Her degree was just finishing the job that I had been doing at the time was just coming to an end. So we were both kind of at the end of a, end of something. Mm. We thought, well, if we're ever going to make this big leap, this big change, this is the moment to do it. Mm. So we moved to Shropshire and I set up my own business, Amazing. which feels profoundly risky, but that's what we did and it worked. That's just it's wonderful. And all the time, still with the plan of when you're 55... You're going to write your novel. So what happened when you turned 55? <laughs> it was so funny, you know, because you're going along all of this time thinking, oh, well, you know, it's in 25 years' time, it's in 20 years' time, it's in 15, 10, 5 years' time. And suddenly you think, oh, my God, it's in six months. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so 
I I was 55 in February 2017, and I did exactly as I said I would do. I gave up the day job oh. and um, uh, started to wind up the business and applied to do an MA in creative writing at Warwick because mm-hmm. I thought it would be helpful to have that sort of structure somehow that sort of right to be part of a writing community I I suppose Mm. and I thought there was an option you could do the MA either in one year or two you could do it part-time in two years so I thought well two years sounds like a reasonable time to write a novel so and I remember when I went to the interview at Warwick I said to them look you know the only reason I'm coming here is because I'm writing this book and I'm going to I'm going to start it now and I want to finish it by the time I finish the MA. That's my goal. I'm not going to write anything else. So if that's okay, that's what I want. That's what I'm doing. And they looked a bit surprised and went, that's fine. Yes, fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's literally what I did. So the final piece of work that I handed in for my MA was the last few chapters of the book. So by September... 2019 the end of the two-year course I had a novel ready to take into the world amazing amazing and how before we go into that how what was that like to wind up your business that you know you'd spent 20 years creating that must have been a that that was a really brave decision Annie because obviously as say 55 it's not like you you were 75 and so to and to to wind up something that you knew and you could do and you loved for something that you didn't know that you'd like I mean I think that's incredibly brave I mean what was that like I think you know everything has its time doesn't it Mm. and I think that because this goal had always been there in my head like you know the finishing post that I wanted to get to to start something else giving up the business although I'd loved it and really enjoyed it felt easy Mm. because I'd, I'd had a great time, but I was done yeah. with it. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. <clears throat> the, the, the difficult thing <clears throat> was, I guess it took some time for me to mentally get my head around, was the financial side of it. Yeah. Because obviously that was going to change. Um, you know, because if you're, if you're running your own business and you – you need to earn more money. You just crank the handle a bit harder, don't you, and work more money, mm. earn more money. But when that that is switched off and your income becomes a much more defined thing, you know, the return on your investments in your personal pension plan or whatever it is, mm. it's more fixed and it's more concrete. And it took me a while to just get my head around that. Mm. But a lot of people kept, you know, would say to me, oh, but, you know, are you not concerned about not having a business life anymore or not having that status anymore or not having whatever? And I wasn't in the least concerned about that. No. I was excited by the idea of moving on and doing something very different. And being in a learning environment again was mm-hmm. so exciting because I felt that I knew my job very well. I'd been doing it, you know, I'd been around that ring so many times. To be in an environment where I was learning something, a student again, was actually very exciting. Mm, I can imagine. And did you have, I mean, you spoke earlier that it was very important for you to have that financial security. Did you feel secure enough 
that you could do it okay yes you'd have to perhaps look at things sort of a little bit differently but did did you did you feel you presumably you did feel secure enough that by then you you reached your goal that you wanted to do which is why you waited till you were 55 yes yeah Mm. yeah absolutely absolutely and it would have been very difficult to do it had I not achieved that level of financial security for Mm. myself but you did what you set out to do. I mean, that was such a foresight when you were, I mean, that age in your 20s to think that. I mean, I'm quite gobsmacked, Annie, because I don't know that, that many people have done anything like that. So it's incredible. So then you did it and then you wrote your book. And then as I well know, you know, it doesn't end there because obviously it's amazing. And But, but actually, we should just first of all speak about with Cecily because I've been reading your book and I mean, it starts, I mean, it starts with the, I mean, it's pretty raw. I mean, it's amazing, but it takes you right there with the like the burning of jo- Joan of Arc. And it was yes. like, and gruesome. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm come from a world of rom-com Annie. <laughs> and that sort of thing. So it was <laughs> a bit different, isn't it? I mean, this was different. Um, this was different. But but it, it was so real. And like you say, you write it almost in like today because it, it felt like it could be that morning where she walks out and she sees she's only I think she's only sixteen at the time, Cecily. And, yes. and it's yeah. and to be standing there next to her husband, I don't think they were well, they're about to be married, they're about she'd been set up with him and yes. watching this woman burn. Oh my yes. goodness. I know. Well, I wanted, you know, what is this novel about? Well, it's about Cecily Neville, who is the matriarch of House of York. Yes, that's what it's about. But what it's really about is how women exercise power and how they exercised power in the 15th century and got things done. But it's also about how dangerous that could be, Mm. you know. You can push so far, <laughs> but push too far and the patriarchy is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. Mm. And when I realized that Cecily actually was in Rouen, in France, at the time when John burned and would have almost certainly witnessed it, I thought there is no better place to start a book that is about women exercising power and putting themselves at risk by doing so mm. than here with Joan of Arc. Mm. So that felt like a very natural place to start the book. Mm-hmm. And she's, and say she's 16, and then she, obviously that that has such an impact on her that then mm-hmm. that how she how she lives her life. And like you say, she lived, what, for 80 years, So which was so rare in those days as well. So she must have, you know, she overcame so, so much. And how do you do it, Annie, where, where obviously you're writing fiction, but there are going to be some people that may know about this. So there, are, there is a, I know you said that she's not so well documented. So did that, did that give you your freedom to, to, to add to it? Or how deep was your research that you know, like you know she was probably very likely there that morning. But throughout the book, how did you do your research? I think, you know, I sometimes say to people, I've been researching this book for 40 years. Mm. And, and in a way I have, yeah. because, you know, I've been reading and talking and finding out about her through all of that time. Um, so by the time I got to age 55, I thought I felt I knew her quite well. <laughs> bet, yeah. And then a bit of serendipity happened. Um, because up until 2017, there hadn't even been a sort of academic biography of Cecily. But as luck would have it, in 2017, just as I was sitting down seriously to write the book, one was published. Wow. 
I'd known for a couple of years it was coming, and I vaguely knew the woman who was writing it. She's a um, um, an academic historian called Joanna Lane Smith, and she's a specialist in medieval women. And uh, her book came out, so I raced out and bought it and read it from cover to cover, and then plucked up my courage and got in touch with her. And I said, "Look, I'm writing a novel about Cecily." I'd really love to meet you because I've got two or three things I really want to discuss with you about Cecily and her history. Um, can we meet? And she emailed me back and she said, oh, that's marvellous. How many novels have you written? <laughs> I said, well, none yet, but I'll buy you a very good lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we met in, I remember it so clearly, we met in Oxford uh, in a lovely Italian restaurant oh, nice. and we sat down to, to, to have lunch. And I could see she was quite cautious as the conversation began. But by the end of the afternoon, they were almost throwing us out when they were trying to set up the dinner because we were just for hours. Just um, So that has been immensely helpful. And she has become a very good friend and a great friend of the book too. Mm. Because I was very determined to... I wanted to write a book that was as historically credible and accurate as I could make it. So... For example, if we know that something happened in such and such a way on such and such a day, I won't pretend that it didn't. Mm. I won't play fast and loose with history and I won't change the history. But there's an awful lot about the 15th century and about the Wars of the Roses in particular that we don't know for certain or that could be interpreted in several different ways. Um, so you have to weigh the balance of probability, I suppose. Mm. And often when you're writing about women in this period, you know, the history has been written by men and about men. So often you find yourself picking your way through what the men were doing to work out what the women were doing. But there's a good deal of, of Cecily's correspondence that survived. There's a good deal of her business correspondence that survived. There's, you can infer a lot by what other people, other, her other contemporaries say about her and what they do around her. You can see how much influence she's having. I'll give you a great example of that. Um, shortly after her son becomes, her son Edward IV becomes king, he, he does that through war, I'm, I'm trying to avoid spoilers, but, but you know there are a series of battles. He becomes king. He comes to London. He accepts his kingship, but he says, "Don't crown me yet, because there's another army in the north. I've got to go and fight them. You know this isn't over yet. I've got to go north." So he's got to go and fight again. Who does he leave in charge of his kingdom while he's gone fighting? His mum. His mum. Of course he does. Not one of his captains or his generals or one of the noblemen, his mother. And he makes her head of his household, and she's effectively regent. So she's sitting in Westminster, the country in complete turmoil, and she's got her fingers in the rain. She's trying to control it all. And you can imagine what the atmosphere was like. You know, Westminster would be full of people going, what's happening, what's going on? foreign ambassadors trying to work out what's going to happen in England and reporting back to their masters on the continent. And there's one great letter from one of the ambassadors back to his master. And I'll paraphrase what it says, but basically it says, look, here's what's going on in England. 
it is regime change. Edward is going to be king, and that's great because the people love him like he's a god. But if we want to do business in England, we need to do it with his mother. Wow, so the power she had. Yes. I mean, that tells you everything you need to know about Sesame, yeah. doesn't it? Well, I tell you what, I think we could all do with her today. I mean, it sounds like we're in such... <laughs> similar sort of chaos we need Cecily in to sort it all out yes we do that's what we need that's what we need but my goodness and I mean how lovely as well that you met that lady and had your lovely lunch and uh, created that friendship and and what a coincidence that it well I I don't really believe it I think it's always the sign Annie in the universe but the fact that it happened she her book came out at just at the same time as yours I mean that was uh, sorry at the same time you started writing it I mean that's just incredible so and presumably with your then the fiction side that you you um, you then bring in because she's very a, a very real person. So you, that's what you bring in your that you can only imagine what she must be actually going through. And again, yeah, I'm sure you drew on all your own experiences that you saw women in difficult situations in the business world, and you could draw on all of that to create this wonderful character. Yes, absolutely. And I think you know, understanding, observing how women function within business within politics and within family yeah yeah because that's the other big part of you know people think it's only 21st century women that have to do it all you know have the career and do the kid thing as well but goodness me Cecily did yeah she did she spent so much of her life pregnant 12 children oh we're not sure how many miscarriages within within that too. Um, and how she lived till she was eighty. I mean, my goodness. I know it's it's amazing. In those days, in those days. Yeah, but the thing that killed so many women in the Middle Ages was childbirth. Yeah. And the risks of childbirth were huge. Yeah. So if you managed to survive, if you were lucky, and you gave birth easily and you managed to survive childbirth and you're an aristocratic woman so you had good diet and a fairly good standard of living I guess your chances of living a reasonable lifespan once your childbearing years were over were not bad Mm. but I suppose that she was in such a position as we saw with with Joan, you know, she it was always a fine line that she could have put herself very easily at risk as well. But I can I can I, I completely see why you've been so fascinated with her. She is a and how lovely to have that fascination with one person. You sort of weren't distracted at all, and you stayed with her. So you wrote your book, which is amazing. While you were doing your course, so as I say, as I know very well, it's not simply as easy as that. Then becomes the next side of getting her out in the world and. You must have presumably just wanted her story then now to be out there. So what did you do? You, you ended you amazing and congratulations, you're published by Penguin. So how did this all come about? It's amazing, isn't it? It's, so I guess that, yeah, so the, 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 the MA in finishing the novel got us to September 2019. And so, you know, that felt like a whole 40-odd year plan had come to fruition. I had a manuscript. And it had taken all of that time. And then things really speeded up. Because um, the first thing, if you're on the journey to getting published, the first thing you have to do is get an agent. Um, and I've been sort of courting some agents um, in the final year of, of my MA. 
So by the time I had a finished manuscript, I had eight or nine agents who had seen a little bit of the novel and said, yes, we want to see it all as soon as it's finished. So I sent it off to them, and I guess the end of September, and three day, literally three or four days before Christmas, I was I accepted an, an agent offered on the book, wow. and I so it was a, it was a very good Christmas. That's we drank amazing. Wow, <laughs> quite right as well. And then so uh, quite early in the new year, mid January, I suppose, um, the agent then sent it out on submission to publishers. Which is the most nerve-wracking experience you can ever have. I think I ate my fingernails down to the elbow in that sort of few-week period. Um, and then at the in March, literally a, a week or two before the whole COVID thing exploded and we were all locked down, Penguin offered on the book. Amazing. That so it was so wonderful. quick. Yeah, it you was. Know, from September to March, it was so quick. Yeah. And I've spoken to so many novelists who you know, had written three, four, five, six manuscripts before they got an agent to mm. accept one. And well, I'm, I'm one on. of them. Annie, I'm one of them. I've done four. I've done four. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, that's a different story. But, yeah, I mean, how... But um, obviously, you because I suppose because you'd researched it and done it so well, you didn't have to do go through lots of rounds of edits. You know, for it, it sounded like it was in really good shape. So, so that feeling, I mean, what was that like, Kenny, after all those years and, and saying that you wanted to do this at 55 and then that moment when you knew it was actually going to be published? I mean, yeah. how did that feel? Yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, I still don't think I... I still expect to wake up in the shower and discover it's all been a dream. Oh, <laughs> oh no. It's, um, it still feels so surreal and and just fabulously wonderful. Um I, one great moment, I was very determined to hold the launch for the book in Ludlow Castle, which had been Cecily's home for so long and is not very far from where I live now. And I wanted to take her home yeah. and do the launch there. And the book came out in July 21. And, of course, we were then still in the throes of COVID and lockdowns and blah, blah, blah. And it was very hard to be sure right up until, you know, the last few days whether we'd be able to hold the event, whether the restrictions would be lifted in time. And thankfully they were. Amazing. And there we were on the 29th of July, 2021, in Ludlow Castle with 100 and more people, lots of champagne, stacks of copies of the book, and, and bringing Cecily home to Ludlow. And that mm. was just, um, I don't think my feet touched the ground all evening. No. That Annie, that's just amazing. That's so. And uh, again, I'm just still so gobsmacked that you had this sort of insight at, at, at in your you know early twenties, and then it happened, and there there you were, you know, just doing it and celebrating it. And how has it been taking Cecily into the world and people's reaction to her? It's the best bit. <laughs> the best, the best bit, I think, because writing is such a solitary business. And of course it's enjoyable, but sometimes it's profoundly painful and mm, difficult yeah. and lonely. You know, yeah. it's a very lonely thing sometimes. So when the book is out and you can go into the world and talk to people about this character that you've been obsessing with for 40 odd years, you know, 
it's just so liberating. And a great charge for my partner, who'd been listening to me witter on about Cecily for all of <laughs> yeah. these. You know, she could find it. No, Annie, go and talk to those people. <laughs> <laughs> you had somebody else now. But, somebody else. Yeah, but history is such a topic that people are so passionate about. And to hear right. uh, this story about a woman whose story isn't so well documented, I mean, my goodness, what, what an opportunity. So, so for Annie, for your to be continued, now I love this as well, because so you're deciding now, is it just all about Cecily or do you want to be a novelist? And where, yeah. are, where are we on this? Well, I guess in a way that decision is taken. And, and I guess... When I finished Cecily, I always knew there was another book to come to tell the whole story of her life. So next July, my second book will publish, and it's called The King's Mother, and it's a return to Cecily's world a little bit later in her life. Um, and it's really at a time when the Wars of the Roses reached their height, I suppose, that sort of 1461, 1485. And I guess in book one, we've seen her dynasty rise, and in book two, we'll see her dynasty fall. And we've got Cecily, but we've got three other fabulous women that come into the story. So we're spreading our interests a little bit. So there's Cecily, who is, as the book opens, the king's mother, because she has Edward on the throne. And then we have Marguerite of Anjou, Elizabeth Woodville, who becomes Edward's wife and queen, and Margaret Beaufort, who is the mother of the Tudor dynasty, who through the course of the book will all, because of circumstance or ambition or sheer desperation, do some really quite extraordinary things to try and put their boy on the throne and become king's mother themselves. Yeah. So this second book is a book all about sort of maternal ferocity and what women will do for their sons, if you like. The thing is, though, Annie, again, apply that in the modern world because I am a mother of sons, but, I mean, hopefully I'm not that ferocious, but I'm not going to... <laughs> Annie, some some mothers are. Some mothers... Really, I see you just it. haven't been tested yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, what to keep your son alive. Oh, well, exactly. I mean, it's true. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely true. So, again, you're really... These topics and themes are so relevant to today. And it's yeah. funny, isn't it, how the world just hasn't changed? Because I suppose humans are always going to be humans. And we we're are always the same, aren't we? We, are, we all think we're different, but we're not. We are actually so alike. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So for your acknowledgements, I'm guessing, well, I do know who you're going to thank. <laughs> that, yeah. So, But who would you like to thank who has helped you along the way? Well, Keith Hill, for yes. one. Um, and then I think just... You know, all of those women that I've known in my life who have watched and observed and learned from about how women conduct themselves, for sure. But, you know, absolutely, Keith Hill. Mm. I had one lovely experience shortly after Cecily was published and I was in a bookshop in, of all places, Whitley Bay, mm. and I was just sitting in the back of the shop signing copies for them you know, mm. so they could sell yeah. sign copies. And this guy came into the shop and started talking to me, and it turned out he was he was very enthusiastic when he realised I was the author of Cecily. 
And it turned out he was a history teacher in Cambridge. And he said that he'd been teaching the Wars of the Roses to his A-level class. And he said, I just couldn't get the girls interested in it at all. He said, the boys were fine. They loved it because there's lots of battles and fighting and blah, blah, blah. So they were fine. But he said, I couldn't get the girls interested. So he said, I bought them all a copy of Cecily. Wow. And he said, no, I can't get them to talk about anything other than the Wars of the Roses. They're obsessed. And I, I was close to tears because I thought everything has come full circle. You know, a history teacher inspired me and now a history teacher is using my book to inspire other people. What might they write in, what might those young girls write in 50 years? What have you stirred in them? But, oh, that's amazing. But again, isn't it, this is the power of storytelling and Mm -hmm. like done the same story told one way okay that attracts the boys but when you get into the empathy and the character and the woman behind and who she is and I mean look at the difference isn't that it's just so powerful well I think so many historians struggle to understand what went on in the wars of the roses because some things happen that are just what the women were doing Mm. and when you look at what the women's motivations were the actions of the men make a lot more sense. Mm. Because you see that the women, historians just ignore them. Mm. And yet they are the, you know, they are driving the action. Yeah, as they always are, as they always as, were. Yeah, I was at a his, history conference a few months ago and there was a, I won't name him, but he was, you know, reputable and established male historian of the period. And I wanted to know what his opinion of Margaret Beaufort was mm. and with Henry VII's mother. So I asked him and he looked at me and he said, oh, I've never given her a moment's thought. I mean, <laughs> um, honestly, this is, so, well, this is what we're talking about, isn't it? It's this, it's this attitude, which it isn't just to historians. It's, oh, I it's mean, everywhere. it's everywhere. But at least your people like you know your women like you are making us all aware even more so, and it just brings it back to it really, doesn't it? And the more yeah. aware we are, the more we can do something about it. So, do you think you will carry on and write another novel based? Oh on? well, there you go. That's funny because when when Penguin commissioned Cecily, they knew that there were two books about Cecily, but they only contracted for one, which you know, new author will test and see, you know. Um, but they always knew a second one was coming. So when we contracted for the second Cecily book, they asked me if I had an idea for a third. And I said, oh, yeah, kind of, yeah, kind of got an idea. And they offered me a two-book contract to write both books. Wow. And I found myself signing it. <laughs> so I thought, oh, well, I clearly I want to be a novelist. Because yes. I, I did wonder, you know, once I've written Cecily's story, will that... Will that be it? Thank you. That I've done. That was that was my ambition, and I've done it. Move on and do something else. But I found myself sitting there, happily signing this contract to write the second Cecily book and then another, and feeling very excited about re- writing the new book about a different period of history and a different set of characters that I haven't been researching for forty years. So it's a bit scary, but feeling quite excited about doing that. So. But also, you know, when you started at the beginning, what you wanted your life, you know, this podcast is all about sort of creating a life that you love. 
and taking you know agency over it and you said about okay you'd work and then you'd write you know write your novel and that sounded like an idyllic life but you're doing it and you've done all the all your exciting and your global business and you've done that but now to be able to write about subjects that you're so passionate about and spend your days in that passion communicating it to others I can't think of anything better that you could be doing I mean it's just just amazing yeah. and a lovely part of the world as well. I mean, you've, you've yeah. done it. You've done it. So look, Annie, someone listening to this who's inspired by you, and I'm sure many are, what would you say to them? If someone's feeling stuck and thinking, well, you know, I don't have a passion like Annie. I, I haven't, I didn't decide when I was very young, but by 55, you know, I've sort of missed the boat. It, all these thoughts that go in our head that keep us stuck but what would you say to that person who doesn't know what they want to do but who just would love to have something as passionate about that they're so passionate about as you are with your work Mm. I think a lot of I think a lot of people who say they don't know what they want to do or they don't have a burning passion often are hiding away from the thing that they really want to do because it scares them yeah um or it seems too big or too unachievable or too difficult or just not for the not for the likes of me you know out of scope well have courage because try it work out a way to make it happen and try and if you fail It'll hurt, but it doesn't matter. And you'll regret that much less than you would regret not trying. Mm -hmm. And this is somebody that has spent so much, a large part of your life studying women being brave, really, which is what it kind of all boils down to, doesn't it? So if we're not brave for ourselves and our own life, nobody else is going to be as, as brutal as that is. But that you must have seen this, Annie, and all the women that you've studied. They've they've ha- they've done it for themselves. They've had to do it for themselves. Yeah, yeah. I've just observed a, a friend of mine who, again, had had a very successful career in business. Um, was had a burning ambition always to to study geology of all things. So after her business ended, she went away and did a, a PhD in geology. Who knew? (laughs) Magnificent. And then thought, well, what is the next thing? And really didn't know what the next thing was. Um, Became incensed with with the current state of politics and became a Labour councillor. And is now, you know, Labour councillor for in Shrewsbury and doing extremely well at that and very, very busy. Something that 10 years ago she would never have even, you know, wouldn't have, been on her horizon to finish off as well i mean your passion has always been so much obviously history and from such a young age thanks to lovely keith but you know somebody else might listen to their passion might also be history or it might be something else and they might think but hang on if if i want to say write about history i need to be a historian or i need but you've proven that you you don't you can just be very passionate about a subject and then you've done it in with fiction. So you're, you know, you're living in your world of history and creating something. You're living in that world. You don't necessarily have to become a, um, you know, you don't have to become an actual qualified person to do something like what you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm always saying to people, you know, I am not a historian. I am an armchair historian at best. You know, I'm an interested amateur 
I read avidly, but I'm not a historian at all. Yeah, but you, I mean, look at what you're doing. You're doing you're doing something that argue better because you're showing these stories, like getting those girls reading the books and that kind of thing. This is, you know, after your experience with the other historian that you mentioned, you know, so you're opening it. So so really sort of what we're saying is you you don't, you know, these these things that we think that they hold us back, actually they're perhaps just, like you say, kind of almost a bit excuses to hold us back because yes. they, you, you have proven yes. you can do it. Yes, it's very easy to look at all of the reasons not to do a thing and always very easy to look at the barriers that would prevent you from doing it. And, you know, as women, we're sort of programmed to do that, aren't we? Much more so than men. You know, men are encouraged to be forward-thinking, to push themselves forward, to assume that they have agency or permission to do such and such a thing. And we have been told, we have been taught, we haven't. We've been taught to be cautious, we've been taught to be reticent, we've been taught to sit back and let the men do it. Well, to hell with that. You know, get over it. Annie Garthwaite, I mean... I couldn't agree with you more. You've done Cecily proud. You've done us proud here on the Next Chapter podcast. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. Oh, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. So there you are. I mean, what next? Well, this conversation has really made me think on so many levels. Now, if you are one of those people who say they don't have a burning passion, but deep down you're hiding from what you really, really want to do, then why don't you just say it out loud? Go on, why not? Just say it, just say it, whisper it. You might be surprised at what comes out. To learn more about Annie and Cecily, the link is in the show notes. You can find me at elliebarkerwrites.com and I'd love it if you signed up for my mailing list. I can send you weekly-ish notes which will give you more tips and wisdoms and advice to help you create a life you love and hopefully make you feel that we're in this funny old world all together. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Empire Fighting Chance. They're a boxing charity and are not only transforming young lives, they're doing everything they can to make our streets safer for us all. I'm so proud they're supporting the work we're doing here. Now, you're listening to the next chapter with Ellie Barker. I'll be back very soon, but in the meantime, what is it? Go on, what do you deep down really want to do? I think you can do it, and Annie does too. Speak soon. <laughs>